Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. You picked a very fine day to tune in to Spirit in Action, as today we have guest host Patricia Stansbury subbing for me. Patricia is on the air at WRIR, Richmond Independent Radio. She's sometimes known as Sunny Gardner, and she shares two different programs there, Groundswell and Lightly on the Ground. We have most of two Lightly on the Ground episodes that they broadcast recently, though one was originally recorded last spring. There's environmentalism, there's history, racial injustice being rectified, and much more. I'll let the talented and insightful Patricia Stansbury, a.k.a. Sonny Gardner, take it from here. Take it away, Patricia. Well, Mark, that was quite an introduction. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to sit in as guest host for Spirit in Action. Let's jump right into a recent episode of Lightly on the Ground. Take me outside, sit in a green garden, nobody out there, but it's so good now. You are tuned in to Lightly on the Ground Radio. I'm your host, Sunny Gardner, and this was recorded outdoors. I hope the audio is okay. I'm sitting behind Farm to Family with Duran Chavis. And you might remember Farm to Family has farm buses and a farm store, and they have a garden here. And I drove up and was very happy to see that Duran has made the garden alive again. So, thanks for making time for me today, Duran. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for making time for me. Yeah. As soon as we fell into this um, contagion and we realized what was going to happen to the agricultural system, yeah. tell me how you saw it coming out. Well, you know, for me, like the first, my first thought was, you know, well, what if the grocery stores close? You know what I mean? A lot of people have a hard time getting to any grocery store already. Already, yeah. So before there was a pandemic, we already knew that there was limited food access in certain communities, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, my question was, how does the pandemic compound that, right? Compound the lack of food access for folks, people losing their jobs, you know, people that are immunocompromised. What does that mean? when people are immunocompromised and have lost their jobs and the possibility of the food supply chain being strained because of the pandemic. We already have been farming to address the lack of food security for communities throughout the Richmond region, but it was important to me to try to figure out how do we get raised beds into people's homes so that they can have agency and express some level of self-sufficiency through urban gardening you know that was really important Mm -hmm. I think that I mean it's just it feels like this is the moment that we've been talking about in a lot of ways like it's not as bad yet but who knows what's to come all this stuff is happening so quickly stuff is shifting so fast there you never know what could could come down the pipe yeah describe some of the factors that you see going into this I mean I know a lot of people are not aware of the way that farmers are directly affected and the way that the chain of getting food from the ground to the table. Yeah, so uh, first of farm labor. Farms that produce 
significant amounts of food rely on farm labor. Folks, predominantly at this time, folks on large farms, corporate farms, uh, they hire people on visas from overseas and from the global south. One of the first things we saw was that the government was uh, hesitant to issue those visas. So as a result, lots of uh, farm workers weren't able to get two farms to start with the early plantings. Uh, so that's going to affect food later in the summer. The second thing, farmers were already, uh, small farmers, and some large farmers too, were reliant on these direct-to-restaurant platforms. So, you know, your Cisco's, your Sadiqo Marriott's, your Produce Source, your, you know what I mean? These third-party aggregators would buy from these large-scale growers mm -hmm. and then take it directly to the restaurant. Restaurants are closed now, right? So they're not they're not selling the type of food that they were. So food, people that are growing were growing all that food. The food is languishing on these large farms because there's no buyer for the produce that was being ordered on a regular basis by the restaurateurs. Right. But that's big chain. You know, we're talking about like that's a Char old Charlie's or a TGI Fridays or a Peter Chang's, right. all the way down to the smaller guys. So that's two levels there already. The, the food that's already been produced is, is in the fields because it, there's no market for it. And the food that we need for three months from now is not being planted. Right. So those two pieces have been challenges, right? Uh, or are already ways that the pandemic is causing tensions in the supply chain. Another way is that we don't have a robust local food system in terms of local producers, right? We have small farmers spattered throughout the region, and they were already kind of strapped to try to meet demand for local food and try to find markets for their food. So with the pandemic hitting, that closed down many farmers' markets that farmers were relying on for their sales. So the small farmers also affected by the closures and now they're having to revamp how they get their food from the farm to the community person that wants to be fed. Mm -hmm. So those are three ways I think that it's, the pandemic is already grinding some of these systems to a halt. One of the shining lights, I guess, is that CSA purchases have gone up for many mm -hmm. farmers. So yeah. they're now like, you know, people are doing deliveries and pickups at different locations for folks uh, with appropriate social distancing. And that's creating a new reality for folks in terms of knowing where their food comes from. So in that cloud, there is a silver lining. So the other piece is that we've seen these large runs on seeds in many online sales platforms, Johnny Seeds, Rare, uh, Baker Seeds, Southern Exposure. Everyone's got like massive demand and backlog of orders has caused folks to shut down how they deal. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's layers to this thing. So, um, you know, we're just trying to, like, adapt in real time. It's like, like I said, stuff is changing week to week, mm -hmm. day to day even. Right. So we're trying to figure out, okay, like, every day just trying to stay tuned to what's happening so that we can shift. It seems that some of the smaller businesses are really nimble. Like, the locally owned grocery stores that have direct contact with our local growers are able to get good quality local produce, and that allows the farmers to keep planting. One store I know, Good Foods Grocery over on Southside, mm -hmm. is going to have a few of the farmer's market people come and park their trucks there. That's a really great idea. And uh, 
and the Alliance of Native Seed Keepers is a very small operation, but they still are selling seeds. Certainly, certainly, certainly. So certainly. that's good to know. That's good to um, know as well. A lot of people are buying these seeds, and here's a bless your heart situation. They're planning on feeding themselves soon. And I've had community gardens at my place, and I've had, you know, seen a lot of a lot of gardens. You know, you plant the seeds, and it's springtime like today. It's gorgeous. The right. breeze is blowing. Yeah. And then in June and July, the crops are struggling, and they're getting right. there ready to fruit. Right. And it's too hot to go out in the garden, Duran. It's yeah, that's why I was kind of like surprised to see so many people purchasing seeds so much because it's like you only can grow so much. You know what I mean? In a small area. We have we have uh, three fourths of an acre, what thirty something thousand square feet worth of space mm -hmm. at farm the family that we're growing on. We had seeds before all this stuff went down, and we still have seeds. You know that we had purchased last year. You know we got our seed order in early mm -hmm. in January, so we got our, ba our our batch. So it wasn't like we needed to make a run on the. So I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people might just be new. This is this is the thing that I've borne witness to. There's a lot of new people that are trying to grow food that don't know how <coughs> to grow food, and they have diff they have lofty expectations, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> they have lofty expectations. Just strew the seeds in the ground, put yeah. some water on them, and stand back. Yeah, nah, man. It's it's you know you don't need <coughs> 400 tomato plants for a 400 foot garden. You plant that one seed and your tomato plant is going to produce, you know, late spring, if you do it now, and it'll keep producing throughout the summer. So if you bought 400 seeds for that small space, you're not even going to use them. And then if you really know how to grow food, once your seeds harvest, you can save the seeds off of what you grow. Right. So it's like you didn't need to get all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just throw in a little bit of free knowledge here if you're going to grow something for seed you need to grow one variety of that if you're going to grow tomatoes and you want brandy wine tomatoes and you want to keep seed grow brandy wine tomatoes don't grow mortgage lifters and tom johns and right. all of these other things right well be squash because they're going to cross pollinate and you're not going to have yeah. the variety that you originally and you won't know what you're going to get <laughs> and if you buy an f1 hybrid you don't know what you're going to get anyway exactly. so <laughs> <laughs> you know, the connoisseurs are buying the pure seeds, yeah, the heirlooms. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it's stuff that we've learned over many years. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I, I'm personally, like, we're growing for direct-to-consumer, mm -hmm. right? And we're growing expecting that chefs will still have some need of produce if they're, as they do their pickup, delivery stuff mm -hmm. to come to the door, the Uber lift guys the folks that are still the folks that are tapped into doordash grubhub mm -hmm. you know we know that they're still going to want fresh produce for their farm so you know we're growing select things we're going to be growing squash growing brassicas of course you know your kales your collards cabbage we're growing peppers uh we're going to grow melons watermelons mm -hmm. uh because we know in the summertime that's really going to be a yeah an amazing commodity to have we're growing potatoes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Stuff that's mm -hmm. going to store. And you know what I'm focusing on, and I always sort of have, it's hard to get, you have to really focus on getting protein out of the garden. And beans are a pretty straightforward way to get protein, the especially peanut, if you peanuts. grow them to the, yeah, oh, I've got the most beautiful peanuts. I oh, bought wow. some Valencias down in Georgia. Nice. Last fall. Yeah. And I picked out all the ones that had three or four 
seeds in them. Nice. Save nice. them for seed. Very nice. I yeah. could share some with you if you. That'd be amazing. Mm -hmm. I, I got these um, West African bambara nuts. Are these they are, ground nuts? They're ground nuts. Mm -hmm. So they're supposed to be a complete protein. They have carbohydrates, protein, and sugar and uh, uh, fat. Yeah. And so uh, they're supposed to be drought tolerant mm -hmm. as well. So I got a couple of those, maybe 60 of them, mm -hmm. just to see. You know, it'll be my first time growing them. But yeah, yeah, you got to really think about how to get the protein out of out of the garden as well. I mean, we're raising chickens, so we got five chickens at my house, and we're getting eggs on the regular. We think we might bigger, build a bigger coop mm -hmm. and get you know some more, so that we really can produce some eggs and have some meat chickens. But yeah, there's lessons to be learned we've been growing we've been raising chickens for a, a year now so we've learned some lessons mm -hmm. you know in terms of that uh and i'm hoping people take that on as well you know yeah yeah so, yeah. so speaking of that knowledge gap uh where would you send people who have you know two dozen seed packets in their pocket and are trying to get the sod off the lawn <laughs> Oh boy! Uh, and I don't want you to tell us how to do it right now because yeah, that no. I mean it's a long story. But where are there some sources of information about how to start a garden? Cooperative Extension is the first place I would go. Mm -hmm. uh, they have the most reliable, tried and true guides. Yeah, lots of paper, lots of lots, publications. Lots of publications, and they have a lot of stuff that's digital now. Yeah. PDFs and stuff like that that you can download. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one. Uh, two. There's some really great YouTube channels. Mm -hmm. that folks have been using for years, you know, to teach people how to, you know, produce their food and etc. Uh, so I, I, would, I would advise folks to go to uh, YouTube and uh, look up some of the more popular folks. Uh, Grow Your Greens is mm -hmm. one that I really like. Uh, another is Geoff Lawton in his permaculture series. How do you spell that? G-E-O-F-F Lawton. He has a lot of permaculture stuff, but you know, and that's advanced for folks. But the principles that he's applying are really sound, right? Uh, yeah, and if you're starting with a lawn, it's good to know about permaculture so that you can plan the garden for the long term. Right. You can go to my website. What's the, that? Thenaturalfestival.com. We've been aggregating some of those videos and some of those popular channels, mm -hmm. as well as cooking channels. So you can not only grow what you learn how to grow, but you can also learn how to cook what you've grown in mm -hmm. various ways. So the naturalfestival.com is one that, of course, I'm a shamelessly plug my own site, but it, it, I feel like it's a great resource. We have a lot mm -hmm. of PDFs on the website, too, mm -hmm. that you can access that will show you how to do the things. And let me plug uh, the Virginia Association for Biological Farming. That's VABF.org. They've been around 35 years or more now. and most of the farmers that you'll find in the Richmond area have been a part of that org for a long time. Certainly. So yeah, those are some great resources. I think that'll get anybody that's really just fledgling and nascent in this mm -hmm. conversation, it'll get them up and running. There's tons of stuff to dig through and, you know, there's so many styles of gardening, you know, yeah. you can take your pick and how you really want to get, get it in. There's some things that are really low cost mm -hmm. and there's some really expensive ways to get it, get it done. So it's all dependent upon how folks want to approach it, you know, and what their resource level is. Mm -hmm. And how about your current platform from which you operate? Are you still with the gardens? No. Okay. COVID-19 forced the garden into a reduction in force, okay. and unfortunately I was part of that reduction. So mm -hmm. I'm no longer with uh, Lewis Ginner Botanical Garden, 
beautiful RBA is also on pause um, as a result of the uh, COVID-19, but I'm still working, you know, in light of my unemployment, you know, we're still doing the resiliency garden project. We're still farming. So our mission, my mission is, was bigger than Lewis Ginter. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is my life's work, but there's certain points when you just got to, you know, choose, am I going to sit on my hands? Or am I going to be resourceful and nimble and figure out how to make stuff continue to happen? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I've been. It's like, what is it going to take for us to still meet the needs of the community, irrespective of who I'm working for? Right. Yeah, Yeah, I've kind of done the same thing. Uh, My gardens, I've had community gardens, and I was a market gardener for many years. And I had a wholesale business for people that grew more than they could sell because I discovered I could sell more than I could grow. And so that worked out real well. I got... Oh, I can't imagine. I could, yeah. Probably an epiphany. <laughs> right. So I was moving produce from several counties into the Richmond market through farmer's markets and, and selling wholesale to stores. But now, you know, I'm looking at my fallow ground that looks sort of like this, which is quite luscious and beautiful, but you're not going to eat that grass or those those collard flowers over yeah, there. Yeah, no, you're not. But um, <laughs> So now I'm opening it back up to community gardeners in my oh, region. Yeah. I'm between two neighborhoods who have Facebook pages, Yeah. and I've got about six people signed up that are ready to learn how to oh, operate a hoe. Beautiful, beautiful. That's yeah, really and that's uh, Epic Gardens on Facebook. Check, yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Yeah. That's a big issue is people having access to some area to grow. Right, because they have beautiful shady homes with and you know who wants to take down trees although some trees may have fallen in the last 24 hours yeah that yes. storm last night was crazy mm-hmm. nobody out there but it's so good now bathing the sunlight don't mind if rain falls take me outside sit in the green garden A butterfly hides a tree tall down again. Putting my bag down, taking my shoes off, walking the carpet, a green velvet. That was Laura Mvula's Green Garden. When I asked Duran what he was listening to, he brought me up to date on the Wu Tang Clan, which I suggest you explore, as I will. He also offered Ghost Faced Killer's piece, Can It See That It Was Also Simple and I asked him that question. And uh, can it be that it was also simple? That's by Ghostface Killer. Can it be that it was also simple? Whoa, that's a question right there. Yeah. Can it be that it was also simple? That's the song. I'm asking you the question now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's a reminder. And this stuff that we uh, we're going through right now, you know. We've had hard times in communities before, you know, and um, this is just a magnification of it. But at the same time, it's important to remember that, you know, it could always be worse, you know, um, and that for certain communities, you know, I'm, you know, as a, as a black man, as an African-American, you know, I'm reminded of times that we didn't have, you know, often. And I think about, you know, just the abundance that we're cultivating through this work and how that can help relieve the pressure that people experience when they don't have enough. 
You mean the work and the abundance that you produce? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. The, the work that we do is, is designed to help keep people from being in a compromised position. And that's how I feel about it. Music has been helpful to keep me high spirits and just inspired to keep going. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know a lot of people that have been reaching out for these raised beds and, you know, Tell me about that project. That's I saw it on. I mean, you you talked. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, the resiliency garden project. We basically have been asking people if they need a raised bed or they want a raised bed to grow their own food. They can uh, go on our naturalfestival.com website and uh, request one, and we will send it to them. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but some folks got shady area backyards. Some mm -hmm. people have trees. So we're trying to figure out how to get them the best things that can grow, best seedlings that can grow with partial shade backyards. So it's probably going to be a lot of leafy greens. Yeah. You know, less tomatoes for some of those spots. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we've been funding it through fundraising. We've been getting donations for soil. Uh, before I left the garden, um, we had put in an order for wood, so we've run out of that. We've, we've built almost 40-something boxes out of the wood that we got but we still have another 50 that we got to build so I'm going to be placing another order for wood soon so we can fill the remaining 100 and so maybe 150 folks that have requested boxes on top of what the 100 that we've already uh, the 200 that we've already requested we've already received so by the end of this I think we're going to end up having delivered almost 300 boxes how are you doing this? I mean you have two hands yeah right um, volunteers with appropriate social distancing. It's right. really important. So how big are the beds? Six by four. Okay. Uh, and folks, we're, what we have, the system what we have is that volunteers will text the person that's requested the bed, ask them to point out where they want their box at, that the, the, the folks will go and deliver the wood, then we get another set of folks that will go out and build the box, and then another set that will go and deliver the soil. All of those factors don't require any human contact. Mm -hmm. So that is how we're moving uh, to keep people safe at the same time uh, to be of service. Uh, it's working. Uh, we've had almost 50-something volunteers reach out. Uh, the folks that have been in our program, the Beginner Urban Gardener Program, are supporting and helping with building boxes and delivery of soil and wood. Um, and folks are donating all across you know the region we've gotten folks that uh drop thousand dollar uh investments in ten dollar investments in so far in a week we've raised ten thousand dollars which is amazing um, i think it's a really powerful statement of interdependence mm -hmm. and how we all can support each other at this time mm -hmm. yeah. do you still need volunteers yes we need volunteers to deliver soil how can people connect with you if they have a pickup? And so you go to the naturalfestival.com. There's a link on our website that says uh, Building Resiliency Gardens for the Richmond Region. Uh, you click the link, and then on that page, it has tabs that you can click that will take you to the volunteer registration as well as the donation. If you want to make a in-kind contribution uh, of seedlings or soil or wood or if you want to make a financial contribution, all of that is going through our fiscal sponsorship with the Enrichment Foundation. So it's a really great system that we have in place. The Enrichment Foundation? Yes. Is that Enrichment? Yeah. 
E N Richmond. Uh huh. Okay. So, so yeah, they uh, they provide fiscal sponsorship for community gardens. Okay. So uh, the first community garden that I started, McDonough Community Garden, is fiscally sponsored by Enrichment. So that's how we've been continuing the work. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sweet. Well, thank you, Duran Chavis. Um, tell us what you would like to say to wrap it up. Your advice or caution or encouragement. Yeah, nothing says hope like planting a seed. That's. That's that's my mantra. This pandemic has everyone high anxiety, stress. But I feel like the gardening work gives me a space of peace and calm. It also gives me something to look forward to. It's like, we'll get through this. Mm -hmm. You know, Mother Nature is divine in her complexity and refined in her resiliency. And... If we all just take time to be quiet and pay attention to how Mother Nature adapts and evolves and changes and balances itself, you know, and stay in tune with that and listen and pay attention to our own intuitions, uh, I think we'll be good. And the most important thing is just, you know, how do we support the least of us? I feel like that's part of my healing, part of my medicine as active and supporting people as I possibly can. That's keeping me moving forward. That's giving me something to get out of the bed to do. That's giving me the energy and spirit of, you know, resiliency. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to get our hands dirty and keep at it then. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and go. All right, Duran. Thanks you for your help. No problem. Bye. And that was Duran Chavis here in the backyard by the bee hives at Farm to Family. And I'm your host, Sunny Gardner. This has been an episode of Lightly on the Ground Radio. And you can find out more about that at LOTG Radio on Facebook, where our sister program, Groundswell, also lives. And it's recorded for initial broadcast at WRIR.org. That's Richmond Independent Radio. You can listen at 97.3 FM and at WRIR.org, where you can later go and listen to in the archives there. Wake up, walk in the light, and live lightly on the ground. That was part one of guest host Patricia Stansbury filling in today for Spirit in Action with episodes of her Lightly on the Ground show in Richmond, Virginia. And we have a wonderful second installment coming up shortly. Do remember you're tuned in to Spirit in Action on the web at northernspiritradio.org for the past 16 years. Visit our site to get links to Patricia, Duran, and Joseph Rogers, who will be in this next part, and a lot more northernspiritradio.org. Drop us a comment and feedback when you visit. Click donate to support this full-time work and especially support all the wonderful community radio stations around the country, like WRIR, where Patricia hails from, that bring such excellent, close-to-the-ground news and music. Time for me to quiet down, let Patricia continue her magic with a second episode of Lightly on the Ground here today for Spirit in Action.
birds be a little quieter. <laughs> you are tuned into an episode of Lightly on the Ground Radio and Lightly on the Ground in our sister program, Groundswell, our Sunny Gardener Productions for Richmond Independent Radio and other community and low-power FM stations, including the Work FM in Chesterfield County and Northern Spirit. As you can probably tell, we're here at the Epic Gardens Outdoor Studio this afternoon. And uh, we'll take a pause occasionally if the traffic or the air traffic gets too loud. But uh, i kind of tickled because I'm finally able to sit down with Joseph Rogers. I met him through the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality. And uh, you have quite a history. Thank you for coming over after your busy day at work, Joseph. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to be here, too. So, yeah, no, no problem at all. Well, good. Good. I know that you're a more recent participant in the, the Virginia Defenders, but that you have a history and an ancestry that might inform this work. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start like telling who you are, who your ancestor was? <laughs> you know? Let me just kind of open. The mic is open. Yeah. No. I Well, one, I appreciate the flexibility of being able to tell the story because I don't know where to start half the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, a good place to start is going back to that ancestry, right, uh, where it all began. So uh, I'm seven generations Virginian. Uh, my great, 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 great grandmother uh, was Martha Ann Fields uh, from out of Hanover County. Um, and she was born enslaved in 1813, uh, or as I've started taking uh, the cue of saying enslaved at birth because truly enslavement is an action that has to be taken all people are born free but someone has to come in and to enslave them right so uh, Martha Ann and her children were all enslaved at birth by uh, the people who claimed them as human property and Martha Ann uh, had one son in particular, his name was James Apostle Fields, born in 1844. And James uh, was a man, or at the time of the Civil War, a young man who realized that he needed to have his own freedom. Uh, and so, after having watched three of his older siblings uh, be sold on the auction block, uh, he made a decision later on to seize his own freedom. Now, it took him. It took a, a relatively brutal beating uh, at the hands of the man who owned the family uh, in order for that to happen. Uh, in 1861, uh, Philip Winston uh, beat James uh, across the back for having burned some uh, condemned rail uh, spikes. So this is we're talking fence railing. Uh, they had been out replacing it in the rain, and some of them had rotted away, and so he took some of that wood, and he made a fire with it to dry himself off. And when Phil Winston found out about this, that his property was burning his property, he decided to lay in on his back. Uh, and as a result, James was, was out of commission for about two weeks or so. And uh, what he decided after that moment, after being able to recover was that that was the last time that that was going to happen. He said to his mother, Martha Ann, if I ever see Phil Winston again, I'm going to kill him. And so he decided that he couldn't take that risk. So instead, he took another risk, a different kind of risk, and seized his own freedom, what people often refer to as running away. Uh, He 
decided to self-emancipate, stayed in the area for a little bit, stayed around the woods for a while before uh, having to come back and saying, you know what, I'm actually going to go this time. And he made his way all the way down to Richmond, where his brother had been sold. He lived with his brother as a free man for a time, selling his own labor out uh, at his own behest. And he was captured. He was caught because detectives had been sent out after him. And while he, when he was captured, he was on his way to being brought back to Hanover County. Uh, When he self-emancipated again, (laughs) he's like, you know what? Nope, that's not going to be the way of this. The story is very interesting how he tells it to his brother, George Washington Fields. uh, But he says, uh, basically, uh, he he managed to get out and he's, he's running, he's running, he's running. But his hands had been bound before this and his legs had been bound. And, um... So when, even though we'd had those binds, binds loosened, uh, they were still dragging on the ground behind him. Chains? So in this case, it was actually just some rope. The, the chains on his hands were still there, but the rope on his ankles was loosened. So he was able to run with the rope, but it was still dragging behind him. And if you ever hear a rope uh, dragging through leaves, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't sound all too different from people. And that's exactly what James thought. He thought that the overseer who had um, was taking him back to, to Hanover had caught up to him. Right. He thought he was right behind him. James ran harder and faster and longer than he probably would have if he had thought he had been getting off scot-free. And then eventually he even just simply collapsed. He said, he threw up his hands, he collapsed, he looked behind him, he said, don't come any closer or I will kill you. And then he waits a beat. And he doesn't hear anything. And then he looks down at the, the, the ropes on his, his ankles and realizes in that moment, that is what that sound was. And he collapses and he goes to sleep. I'm, a, I'm assuming sleeping the, the deep sleep of the, the angels at that point. Right. Providence. Uh, yes. Yeah, if he had gone any slower, if he had walked any longer, who knows what would have happened. He was able to just make it that one step over and get over the Rappahannock uh, into freedom where he met up with the United States Army and served as a scout for them for a while. Mm-hmm. And eventually he made his way down to Fort Monroe. Again, this is during the, the Civil War. And so Fort Monroe had become well known as Freedom's Fortress. This is where the contraband decision had been made uh, in mid-1861. This is May uh, 23rd when Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory, uh, three enslaved workers uh, working for a man who was, had joined the Confederacy, uh, made their way to Fort Monroe, petitioned Benjamin Butler, the uh, general in charge of the fort, to take them in and not return them. Mm-hmm. And so when the Confederate commander came over and said, well, under the Fugitive Slave Act, you must return my property, Butler decided, I don't think I will. And his decision, known as the contraband decision, um, seizing what they considered human property as contraband of war, uh, this decision led to, within a week, 500 more enslaved people uh, coming to that fortress, thusly naming it Freedom's Fortress. So by 1864, James is also at Freedom's Fortress. So he 
confiscated all of these souls <laughs> and set them free, I presume. More or less. Their status was nebulous, yeah, right? Yeah. It wasn't... This is before the Emancipation Proclamation. This is before even the Civil War became a war to end slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still a war to defend slavery, at least on those parts of the Confederacy, but the United States had entered this war specifically to preserve the Union and preserve what they considered to be the only democracy in the Western Hemisphere. So they're saying that if we, if the democracy fails because some folks didn't like the results of the election of 1860 and decided that they're going to take their ball and go home, that that's not how democracy can work. And so the United States uh, enters into this war with that preservation of democracy in mind. Uh, the Confederacy forms in the, sub, the first seven states secede with the specific intention of preserving slavery um, because they felt that it was under threat by the election of Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party of that time. But this moment that James finds himself in in 1864 is another interesting one because, as I mentioned, so many other souls have found freedom at this fortress. Mm-hmm. Now that the Emancipation Proclamation has been issued in 1863, taking full effect in January 1st, we also see that those who are there are now, and henceforth and forevermore, free. So James is among those, and he's among the thousands of others who have formed this grand contraband camp at Fort Monroe and at Hampton in Virginia. Because that word had gotten out about this place, when he, by the time he arrives, his mother and his youngest siblings have all been there as well. They're already there. And the rest of the family also gets together too, so his older siblings are eventually find their own way to getting there to Freedom's Fortress too. That's wonderful. I, I would love to hear the whole story, but I'm going to have to go back and read it. <laughs> yes, so the Encyclopedia of Virginia has a fantastic article, just a real quick write-up about James Apostle Fields. Yeah, and, and I so, bet there are a lot of other amazing stories in oh, there. Yes, yeah. indeed. So I'd already mentioned Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory, mm-hmm. those three uh, formerly enslaved individuals who, upon seizing their own freedom, forced the United States to understand that this could be a war about freedom, right? Without their actions, we might not have seen the kind of contrast decision, which would ultimately lead to the Emancipation Proclamation, which ultimately leads to the 13th Amendment. So we can tell that story about Freedom's Fortress through James' story of arriving there and about why it was so important to see everybody there. Uh, we can also tell stories about incredible women like Mary Smith Peak, a uh, free black woman living in the Hampton area at the outbreak of the Civil War. She had been educated in Washington, D.C., and then has to stop her education in the 1830s because of the illiteracy law forbidding black people from learning how to read or write. So she secretly starts teaching people how to read and write. And so when the Civil War breaks out and you see suddenly these droves of people formerly enslaved, some of whom have already been learning the same secretly, uh, same secret schools, but some of whom want to read and want to learn that, that secret, uh, have that power. Mary Peak is the one who does that. She starts these grand schools, teaches under what's now called the Emancipation Oak at Hampton. Oh, what a twisted history we have. <laughs> so intertwined. Fast forward of like course. 150 years. Right, right. <laughs> right, we do. Where did you grow up? Wow, and wow. And come to this work? I'll consider my growing in the work growing up, right? Yeah. Because the details of born in Roanoke, educated in Philadelphia, moving back to Virginia are, are one thing. When I look at my upbringing in the work, the movement for social justice and equality, That started also with James 
And also, I will say, with James A. Fields. But not my ancestor, but in fact the domestic terrorist from the Unite the Rights rally in Charlottesville. Because it was James Alex Fields who ran down Heather Heyer and injured dozens of others on that fateful day on August 11th of 2017. There was something in me in that moment, seeing that name displayed across the TV screen in the way that it was, someone with a name so similar to my ancestor. I realized I couldn't just kind of sit back and support through just financial donations or showing up every now and again here and there, being a body on the ground, but not really being a, a presence in the, in the struggle. That's when that changed for me. I realized that this was a moment that I needed to take. I needed to try to start lifting up the names of James Apostle Fields as opposed to James Alex Fields. Because what was it that united those two names together was actually the legacy of the Civil War and the memory of another man, Robert E. Lee. All of the things that happened in the Unite the Right really, though diverse in their messaging, revolved around the idea of preserving the Lee statue in Charlottesville. And as I look back into James's history, noting that he was, in fact, one of the last black legislators. He was serving in the Virginia General Assembly in 1889. He and those four were the last of a uh, hundred or more black men who served in the legislature in the Reconstruction era. But when James was elected in 1889, it was also a shift back towards white supremacy. The Richmond Dispatch even said as much in their headline as the results of that election came in. If I'm remembering the quotation correctly, it said, white men do their duty well, no room here for mixed politics. Talking about having defeated Mahone and his readjuster party, which was a specifically biracial coalition. William Mahone was a former Confederate general who, during the period immediately following what we understand as Reconstruction, created what was called the readjuster party. And the Readjuster Party was designed to preserve many of the gains that had been made during Reconstruction to include the uh, public education system, which only came about as a result of the end of the Civil War and the Reconstruction of Virginia. The statewide public education system was a direct result of that and of black men advocating for it in the General Assembly, or the convention, I should say. This readjuster party, this biracial coalition, was a direct threat to those who supported white supremacy. And because of that, they sought to break it up. They spent years trying to break it up. And they finally had to give in to one concession. They said, you can keep your public schools then, but we got to bring back this race issue. And that was how they ended up dividing the readjuster party so that by the 1889 election, they are able to herald it by saying white men do their duty well because they have now sided again with white men as opposed to voting in black lawmakers. And James was the last black law legislator to put forward a bill for the next uh, 75 years until William Ferguson Reed. But what does that do with, have to do with Lee? Let's come back to that. Yes. Right now is the point where it's nice to interject a little music because they need to do a station yes. ID and that sort of thing. So. <laughs> Uh, Joseph Rogers. The song that kept on playing in my mind is a song that was playing throughout 2018 for me and into 2019, and it's an old one. Mm -hmm. It's Sam Cooke, mm -hmm. and I think we all know it because it's it's uh, change's gonna come. All right? right. So I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, 
just a good song. Can you just sing a verse of that right here and now? Oh, uh, sure. All right, let's do that because that's always the best. I love live music. <laughs> I promise I'm no Obama when it comes to singing, but uh, <laughs> just can't catch your breath and, and uh, <laughs> this is going to be Joseph Rogers' rendition of Sam Cooke's "Change Is Going to Come." Yeah. Go as far with it as you want. Absolutely. Well, I was born by the river. In a little tent And just like that river I've been running ever since Oh, it's been a long, long time coming But I know change gonna come Oh, yes it is I'll, I'll let I'll let Sam Cook do the rest of it. Okay. <laughs> it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know. Lightly on the Ground Radio, and my guest today is Joseph Rogers on WRIR, Richmond Independent Radio, and all-volunteer radio station, WRIR.org. And that was Sam Cooke and Joseph Rogers on their duet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only. I think about that song a lot because Sam Cooke died before the Civil Rights Act uh, was passed. But he saw that was that change was on its way, right? He saw that moment and he sang about it so well. So I think about that so much, especially in the context of the work that we're doing, um, because I believe that we can get to the, where we need to go within our lifetimes. I truly do. I believe that we can see justice. I believe that we can see the abolition of the prison system, uh, abolition of uh, systems of oppression, of all systems of oppression within our lifetimes. I believe that we can see that happen. I believe we need to have the will to see it through. But I believe that we can see it happen because there have been far too many people who have been singing about change gonna come, but never get to live through that change. And I wanna make sure that as many people as possible had that opportunity and that's what drives me in the work and what exactly is the work i mean we actually <laughs> left off at robert e lee that juncture between james a and yeah james apostle yeah um but i i do want to hear something about what's going on with yeah. uh defenders fje absolutely i mean this is the perfect point to bring up right james 
apostle field saw the Lee statue go up. It was actually the, one of the very first acts by the uh, General Assembly. 1890 is when the uh, statue itself was unveiled. 1889, the third action that was taken by the General Assembly of Virginia, this no room here for mixed politics General Assembly. Oh, that one. Oh, yeah, right. So one of the, the first actions that they take is to actually accept on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia the Lee statue uh. and Lee monument. From everything I can tell, he doesn't vote for it, but he is there when that happens and he's in Richmond uh, when the unveiling occurs as well, from what we can understand. And so those two things tying together, the defenders were on the ground in Charlottesville during the Unite the Right rally. Mm -hmm. The defenders had been out in front of the monuments since 2007 was the first time that I can trace back when what was then the Richmond Defender newspaper wrote about Robert E. Lee just in time for his 200th birthday as the Commonwealth of Virginia was ready to spend half a million dollars, almost half a million dollars, on cleaning the monument. And the Defenders have been in that struggle since, well, 2007 and beyond and continue to be in that struggle right up until this last week where we finally got to see that statue removed from the public space. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a kind of fulfillment of a long arc there, that kind of work, seeing the statues of uh, white supremacy being taken down and dismantled, and now we can undo the monuments of white supremacy. That is the lasting legacy of racism and oppression in the, the Commonwealth of Virginia and in the city of Richmond. And the defenders have always been very specific on two things. One, that the monuments to the Confederacy should be removed. And two, that there should be a building of other things, right? And in particular, the Shakobata Memorial Park, honoring the legacy of and commemorating the memory of those who were the victims of the domestic slave trade. Richmond itself was the hub for the domestic slave trade, second largest in the country, mm -hmm. second only to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of black bodies were sold and moved through the city of Richmond. And there is yet no marker or indicator really there. The Slave Trail Commission did a fairly decent job of marking out the spaces in the city in a, a direct line that might be able to do it. But there's no large-scale commemoration. So as the defenders were looking at these gigantic 60-foot-tall statues to a man who, had he been successful, would have perpetuated and seen the perpetuation of slavery. And yet nothing to those who suffered and struggled underneath that system. It became a dichotomy of sorts. You cannot have these monuments and also ignore these things. You cannot have these monuments at all. And you must uplift the stories of those who suffered under that oppression. And so I came into the movement in 2017, like you mentioned, relatively recently, through monument action and the building of Shaco Bottom. And that then evolved into so much more. And now I have had the great pleasure of being able to be the MC, if you will, of the annual Virginia Prison Justice Rally, so that we have that in every January, which uh, for the last four years we've had it, and it's been very much focused on connecting prisoners to their families and understanding the turmoil that they are going through, especially with mass incarceration being such a tremendous issue. 
Um, we've connected with the community on jail support as well, not just prison support, but also jail support. Last year, especially during the COVID crisis, when it was in its peak, the defenders were out in front of the jails with, along with a coalition of other organizations, including Song, uh, Southerners on New Ground, demanding the release of detainees under these extraordinary circumstances that were COVID-19. The defenders have been at the forefront of the justice and reformation movement after the police killing of Marcus David Peters, a man who is, when I think about it now, he was younger than I am, younger than I was when he died, who just had a mental health crisis. Right. Just so many of the systemic illnesses in our culture. Yeah, our absolutely. And it's pervasive. So. The fact that you have hope about this and some optimism that we're going to see some of these changes come to fruition. I mean, I can see in my life some things that happen, mm -hmm. but I'm so glad I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Right. I think that it's profound that, one, yes, my ancestors saw the monument going up, the Lee monument going up, and then I got to see it coming down. We also got to see that space be reclaimed by the community. And what was it named, renamed? Marcus, Marcus David, David Peters, Peters Circle. Circle. Absolutely. Yeah. All of these struggles coming in together and intersecting one with the other, it's a beautiful thing to see those moving forward. And now as we start to get the Civilian Review Board up and running, as we start to see that Marcus Alert taking effect, these are the kinds of things that we want to see in the city that we know can make for a much, much better, much safer for all of us space that we can all grow and thrive. And the Virginia Defenders have advocated for that for a good long time. Absolutely, we have. Thank you, Joseph. This has been an episode of Lightly on the Ground Radio, and you can learn more about that at LOTG Radio on Facebook and at WRIR.org, our all-volunteer radio station. And you can learn more about Virginia Defenders at their website. Yes, at VirginiaDefender.org. All right. Well, wake up, walk in the light, and live lightly on the ground. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Joseph Ross. Oh, thank you. It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, good. A long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. You heard Patricia Stansbury, a.k.a. Sunny Gardner, guest hosting for Spirit in Action today, and we'll have her back soon. There are links to her Lightly on the Ground program, to her Groundswell program, and to her guests on today's programs on the northernspiritradio.org website. Lots of good stuff. Slow radio, attentive radio, seeking substance and depth over flash and sparkle, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.